Hello and welcome to the Managing Uncertainty Podcast. This is Brian Strauser, Principal and Chief Executive here at BrightPath. This is Barry Wheeler, Senior Consultant here at BrightPath. And in episode 168, we're going to talk about things companies do wrong in a crisis. Because we've never seen anyone <laughs> make any mistakes ever. No, no, never. It's going to be a short episode. It's going to be a short episode. <laughs> Not really. One of the things that uh, I, I think goes back clear back to my pre-crisis days, uh, working uh, when we worked together at big company. Um, I used to work. I grew up with a guy named Josh, and one of the things that Josh would always tell store loss prevention leaders was, you know, you have to make yourself important. You can't. You can't. I, I think he used to say it as you got to make yourself important. You can't just wait for the ticket to the dance. You just have to show up. Yeah, and I've always remembered that not just because Josh was a was a dear friend that we lost to to cancer about a decade ago, but also I think I've taken that lesson and I've applied it to crisis management and business continuity as well, and I think we've literally used those words with a couple clients where, if you're the crisis leader, the business continuity leader, even before the crisis, you have to make yourself important, and if you minimize your program, if you minimize your role. I mean, you don't help yourself when the crisis comes. No, if if you're not taking it seriously as the owner of this process, who else is going to take it seriously? You have to, this is one of those, or I should say, this is sort of a suite of capabilities in an organization that nobody's going to actively champion because You've made should. it not important and you own it. You have to promote it. You have to demonstrate why it is adding value, even though everybody knows intrinsically having such capabilities is inherently valuable. They don't have time to fully and, understand and we, or embrace it. And we hear this all the time when we're helping clients, helping companies start new programs, but even with existing programs. Oh yeah. Even with existing programs where when we talk about like, hey, you need to have regular meetings of your crisis management team outside of activations. You have to have regular meetings because you need the team to act as a team. You need them to gel. You need to have muscle memory. You need to update them on the things that are going on. And the thing, the first thing we hear every time is, well, I don't want to take too much of their time. I don't want to bother them. I don't want to bother them. They won't think it's important. Well, they're not going to think it's important if you don't think it's important. And they won't take it as important. They won't take it as something important if you, as the leader of the program, the person responsible for the program, do not make the program and yourself important. There's a reason why everybody, at least in the sort of in the U.S., takes tornado, knows what to do in a tornado drill, knows what to do in a fire drill, knows what to do severe weather, all those kind of things. Because guess what? We've drilled and we've drilled and we've drilled and it's been taken seriously through school and work and in the public sector, mm -hmm. there's a reason why people know those things. Yes. Because they're taken seriously. Yes. And they're done that way. Yes. Same thing applies to these programs. You mm -hmm. have to engage the program regularly. You have to put people into it for them to start to understand and then champion it for you. It's the biggest kind of positive contribution you can get out of regularly engaging them as they become a force multiplier for talking about it within the organization. And every time that we do an exercise, every time that we, or we do training, training and exercises are the two places we do this a lot. One of the per first pieces of feedback 
that we hear in the lessons learned process or the post-training survey is we should do more of this. We yep. should practice more often. I would like to see us do an exercise on this, 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 and this. Pick your your company's particular problems that they're gearing up right. towards. But I, I mean, we hear this constantly. We heard this from a client that we helped them build their crisis management process last year, or uh, I'm sorry, not last year, earlier this year. I'm already thinking in uh, 2023. Um, that was the principal piece of feedback from their exercise this summer. Their first exercise was, we should do this more often because we practice this scenario, but we got to practice these other scenarios. And that was coming from the the, the participants in, on the crisis management team, not from the program leadership or, or the executive team. Yeah, I mean, once once some of these people have gotten a taste of it, especially if they've been a part of sort of the development of different pieces of it, they've been influential in sort of describing what their particular piece of the process looks like or a critical component of the process looks like, you already kind of have them hooked. And then once they actually get into it and they start having these conversations, it's so different than their normal day-to-day well, that it's, all of a sudden becomes... Part of it, it's fun. Whoa, it's fun. It's fun. It's great, but it also... To your point, it's not just, it doesn't come with a, hey, we should do this more often. It comes with a, we should do this more often and we should talk about these things. Here are the things that are keeping me up at night. All of a sudden, all, all of that stuff becomes visible. It, 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 it Along the lines of the meetings, the regular engagement, we, we've seen companies spend hundreds of thousands of dollars to set up their crisis management program. And we take that crisis, we've, we've built this with them over the course of a year. We train the crisis management team with them. We do the first exercise with them. And then we're in the discussion about what does the second year of the program look like? And they're like, well, we just did the exercise in October. So we'll do another exercise next October. And they don't want to do, as you said, they don't want to do the regular crisis management team meetings. So then I have to sit there and go, okay, I just want to make sure we're thinking about this the right way. You just invested a quarter million dollars in building this program. Yep. And you just trained this team and you had this great exercise with a lot of engagement. And you're telling me you don't want to get the team together again for a year to practice or to meet or to talk about anything. What's going to happen 11 months from now when you have the workplace violence situation, do you think the team is going to remember how the process works? Do you think they will remember this flow you want them to have? The answer is no. No. But there's always silence on the phone and they're like, or the, you know, the Zoom or team meetings as we do it nowadays. And then they're like, oh, so maybe we should have some other exercises. Yeah, this isn't just buying a bunch of fire extinguishers and sticking them around the building and calling them good and inspecting them once every year or two years. No, it, this is, you you lose the muscle memory. You lose the muscle memory. Guess what happens in those 11 months to your point? People change positions. The organization changes the way that they conduct operations. New things are rolled out. New events happen in the world that force conversation, force different action force different ways of thinking about things. Mm-hmm. And if you're not regularly engaging the program and putting people in contact with it and making them think through the challenges that come up during those 11 months, mm-hmm. you essentially just handed over money to whoever you invested in and that was it. 
it's not it's not worth the time. Don't have a program at that point. You know, it's yeah. the The other thing that we see a lot, or or I think I feel like we're always t- having to justify in this conversation around a similar topic is the idea that it's not enough just to manage the crisis. You have to tell the story about managing the crisis, whatever it is. And sometimes it's not even about managing the crisis, but you've had something happen. We were talking with a client this morning about this, right, where they had something happen. Um, in this case, uh, you know, had some folks that were uh, um, kind of nearby to a shooting. And they were obviously traumatized and they had to take shelter and, and you know, they reported it and there's things they had to do. Um, they weren't the targets of this particular attack, but, and the company handled it really well, right? Yeah. They took care of them. They made contact with law enforcement. They provided additional security. They did all the right things. The part that they didn't do is they didn't tell the story about what had happened. So the swirl, as we like to call it, that happened over the last three days since this incident has been multiple people, including an executive who have reached out to the head of global security saying, Hey, I heard we had people that got shot at. Hey, I heard our folks were involved in an active shooter situation. None of that's right. But because they didn't tell the story, they, so the, the value of the consistent crisis communications, even internally to a company, the communication strategy around a major crisis or incident, a lot of companies, I think, struggle with that. Yeah, it, it, communications is definitely a really sort of challenging ironically challenging. And I say that because, you know, organizations are communicating all the time. There's marketing all the time, social media, emails, your web page. you're talking internally on all sorts of different things. But when it comes to a crisis or an incident, all of a sudden it becomes a, like just dead, dead space. Nobody wants to talk about it. And if they do want to talk about it, it's to your point, as I, often said and still continue to say everybody's taking their pants off no there's no instructions to sort of go hey keep your pants on this is this is just fine stop lighting your hair on fire for the sake of lighting it on fire you have to in these situations regardless of sort of how the dynamics of what's being you know what's occurring regular communication through the established communication products you've set up, through the processes that you've put into place, has to happen. If you do nothing else but those pieces, you maintain kind of control over the response, at the very least within the organization. Telling telling the story of what has happened, telling that narrative of what has gone on, is almost as important as managing the darn thing to begin with. Particularly, particularly the larger that your organization is. Yes. Because the complexity of the size of your org and all of the bodies involved in that make it harder. And this is the way that you have to, you've got to think about how do you provide those updates and such internally. And I think that this plays into another issue where companies set up their crisis management process and you've got the incident leader and then they don't see the value in providing support to the incident leader in the crisis. And, and we, it's not, it's not always the company not providing the value, but sometimes it's the incident leader who's trying to do everything. Yeah. Okay. The incident leader's job is to lead the incident and delegate everything else. So when we're building a crisis process, we always talk about, 
you, you've got this support capability for the incident leader. And the most important part of that is having a scribe. Who's going to take notes, track action items? Who handles incident communications? It should not be the incident leader trying to do all of those things. And that's where a lot of these processes fall down because of ineffective delegation or not bringing in other resources. Yeah, that incident leader role is really about making sure the organization is using the process that they've developed and they've laid out and making sure that each player in that process and each capability in that process has what they need. They don't have time to do all that other stuff. If they're doing all of that other stuff, they're not only their effectiveness and the management and coordination and efficacy of the process is at stake, but their ability to continue to manage that over the course of time effectively diminishes rapidly. The burnout factor of managing through a particularly very either emotional or complex or novel situations diminishes that incident leader's stamina considerably faster if there is no support. They have to champion the process. They have to make sure that the process is working internally. And that scribe and some of those other resource support to them is huge. Their only purpose is to make sure that all those key pieces that the incident leader needs to have at the ready when leaders ask or members of the crisis management team ask or leading through the conversation, all of that is there and ready for that incident leader to just pick up and go. Nothing is more valuable than having a good scribe. And frankly, it's, it's harder sort of in the post-COVID world, but good whiteboards, good structured ways of taking notes that have broad visibility to the entire CMT that can see all of the notes and things that are happening. It's huge. It's mm-hmm. huge. The incidents that have been most effective for us are the ones where everybody can see what's happening from a note standpoint and a status standpoint because it, it cuts all the question and the dialogue way, way down. The other challenge we see with some companies is in the crisis management process is you've put the process together. You've established a crisis management team. You have a defined conduit of communication and escalation to the executive team. And then you just have executives that override the process. Oh, yeah. That just take take over. They won't follow the process. They won't adhere to the process. Even though they were a part of buying off on this strategy. Um, I mean, that's... It, it. In a lot of companies, it's a different way of thinking than the way you did it before. But that's one where you got to nip that in the bud. Your executive champion, however you've structured things, you know, you the the responsible executive the responsible executive or the champion for your steering committee or your program they got to stop that um i know we had a client uh back uh, five six years ago we built their crisis process and they had a a pre-existing crisis process and that executive that had overseen the previous process that man would just not adhere no to the new one and they didn't to be honest they didn't resolve it until the uh, the the I won't say the responsible executive, but the the champion for the program had to go to the, first. They got in the guy's face, then he went to the CEO, and they really had it out. And the CEO came down and was like, "No, we agreed to this process. We're going to follow this new process, and you're going to stop undercutting it." 
but that's a huge, I mean, it wasted weeks and weeks of time and, and created organizational confusion where there shouldn't have been any. Yeah, not, not engaging the executives and having that buy-off and then having the follow-through from their peers and the leaders above them signing off on, no, this is culturally in this organization, how we are going to manage these situations is huge. Build it. Part of what makes resiliency programs effective is the cultural component of that. And a huge piece and a really a keystone piece is the executives sort of bowing out of the process in the right ways as defined by the way that you've established the process. They have a role to play. They will eventually be engaged depending on the impacts and circumstances of the incident. But for the most part, the processes that we've seen be most successful and the way that we articulate sort of these frameworks to clients is really around you have to empower the crisis management team. You have to empower that incident leader and that responsible executive or the executive on point, however you describe it. They are really that sort of toll gate between the executive committee and the crisis management team to sort of say, yep, we got to bubble that up or no, we don't. And it's, they keep the appropriate team sort of in, in their lanes to be able to manage that. But it, but it's so essential that that CMT feels empowered, especially if culturally that hasn't necessarily been the case in the day-to-day before this has been set up, to really feel confident in being able to make some of these decisions and represent their areas of the business and work together. They have to, they have to feel like they can depend on each other. And mm-hmm. senior executives jumping in really undercuts that confidence. Uh, it totally undercuts the credibility of the program when that happens because then no one wants to follow that. They'll go back to the race to the top and they'll want to engage in this side process because the organizational incentive is to do that. Right. And it's it's just bad. It's like, uh, well, I think there was a recent article too around like the Angels, the Los Angeles Angels and Major League Baseball, you know, essentially having the head coach telling the general manager to stop calling down to the dugout to start to make coaching decisions. I mean, it's that, it's that type of sort of metaphor there or allegory of you have to allow those people that you've put in those positions to make those calls, make the calls. Mm -hmm. And that's why you hired them and entrust them to do that. And then evaluate, you know, after the fact or evaluate if, something goes completely sideways, but really reserve that for, you know, those moments that are extremely rare. The, the, one of the other things I think we see, if I, if I kind of move towards the, the end of the crisis is in an exercise or in an actual incident or crisis, we, we should be capturing lessons learned. Yep. Right. Absolutely. And for a lot of companies, this is a process, a fraught with drama. Um, we've seen this recently in some discussions we've been in. The I think you have to, you really got to set this up in a way that takes the emotion out of it. And you can have good dialogue and debate, but you have to start with factually what has happened here. 
Okay, what's the timeline? What did we see? It doesn't have to be super detailed, but like what went on? The second part of that is before you can get to the solutions is can we agree on what we want to improve out of this? Okay, so what are the, I mean, maybe there's two, maybe there's 20. What are the things that we agree we want to do better on? And then, not necessarily to find the solution in the moment, but what's the takeaway? What's the action we're going to go take? So, for example, with one of our clients last year, in 2021, we ran a a multi-day data breach, data incident simulation, right? It was a ransomware attack. And I don't know, there were 30, I think there were about 30 action items the crisis management team settled on at the end of this. And, And one of them, which which could have taken us down a massive rabbit hole in the after action discussion was we got people storing documents in all kinds of places in the crisis. We don't need to solve that in the after action discussion. No. What we need in the after action discussion is, okay, what do we want to do better? We want centralized document control. Okay. Everything that has to do with this crisis is going in one place. We don't need to decide in the moment where that place is, who's responsible for it, who's going to maintain it, what platform we're using. Do we need to buy a tool? I mean, that's where a whole bunch of people went going. Our whole point at the end of that was, no, no, no. The issue is we didn't have good centralized document control and storage. The solution is somebody needs to devise a centralized document storage process for crisis management. Who should that be? Well, it's for crisis management. It probably should be the resiliency team. Great. Now we have an owner. They can go figure out how to do it and bring in whatever stakeholders. But we get fraught in solutioning. Yes. Or the drama around, well, I don't want to take on this extra work or I don't want to do this. That's not the point of of the lessons learned conversation. It's what are we going to do? Not the solution, but like what what are we going to try and solve here? Yeah. The solutioning rabbit holes are so easy to jump jump into because it you get to be creative again it gets back to you get to be creative you get to brainstorm you get to try and strategically navigate kind of how your team is or isn't going to play a role in that but that's not really the point of the after action to your point it's to identify what's happened what are those things that we need to agree need to be fixed and then assigning the owners to them and letting them go do it and then at the end of it Guess what? It's perfect, regular CMT or crisis management team meeting agenda items. It's perfect fodder for those meetings, content for those meetings to be able to talk through, hey, one of the things we learned from that exercise was we needed a centralized or a better way to document or store our documents. Here's how we went about did that. And here's where they're going to be going forward and talking through that in those meetings that it's easy, easy material for those monthly, for those monthly meetings. You know, and I think the other piece too, as, as people sort of think about it, you know, we're in these conversations with clients too, and they sort of look at the, the nature of the incident as unique or, you know, something that they have to solve for in particular and less on what mechanically process wise didn't work in our in our framework 
And there's there's certainly things to be learned from a, hey, we've had a fire and something didn't work or we need a little bit more direction or the team was confused by instructions in the emergency response guide or something like that. That's entirely valid stuff to capture and ways to improve in a process. But there's also the, what didn't we do from a response standpoint that we need to fix? So it's, there's that incident piece and then there's the process piece that have to be in there. Plus there's probably processes within an, a capability in the organization that you know they have to learn, ooh, we didn't actually do what we said we were gonna do or that's not at all how we thought that was gonna work in just our normal business. We gotta go solve for that. And yeah, you capture it, but you immediately assign it out to that team and that's the end of it. It doesn't have to move any farther other than they've recognized it as something on their end. Mm -hmm. But there's so much value in that after action that going down the rabbit holes limits that ability to see the full breadth of what you were able to learn and what you can do better, not only on a day-to-day basis within the organization, Mm -hmm. not only in how you respond to a crisis, but just how do you work better as a team and how do you build better awareness and a better resiliency culture? Well, and I think the other action item that comes out of those, uh, I shouldn't say action item, the other failure point we see coming out of those is you, let's say you do this process right, right? You write an effective after action report, factual timeline, a list of opportunities, defined action items. Then what? Then you gotta solve the action items. Because our approach has always been here at Brightpath, when we come in to do an exercise, the first place we go looking as we think about, well, what do we want to hit in this exercise? What do we want? What are some pain points we want to pressure in the exercise? We look at the data from the previous exercise and went, so where are you guys at on these things? Oh, you haven't all done that. Well, we're going to test it again. He said, we're going to make it worse because that's real life. That's the thing that you didn't that's fix. That's the thing that you didn't fix. That's the thing that's going to happen. It's the pipe that's still leaking. Yeah, and even even if even if it's not even if it's not deliberate in a future incident, that's just the way that chaos works. Yep. Right. It's like going into nine eleven, going to the nine eleven attacks. The terrorists on nine eleven were not intentionally trying to exploit the fact that NYPD. And the New York City Fire Department did not have the ability to communicate with each other on the ground with radios. They didn't know that. They didn't care about that. But now you've got a massive terrorist attack that has a huge police response and a like one of the biggest fire responses in history, and they can't talk to each other. And that was a huge factor in the issues that went down in the response and the immediate recovery in New York on September 11th. So that's an issue that had been previously identified. There'd been a lot of talk about how to solve it, but it hadn't been solved. And now you've got an attack that no one was deliberately trying to exploit that, but that winds up being one of the contributing factors to what happened that day. Yep. Yeah, it's capturing those things and then pressuring in future exercises is huge not only from looking at it as a, you know, we're going to pick on the thing that doesn't work. The flip side of that coin is, oh, you have a solution to that? Okay, well, let's let's throw something against that and see if it holds up in these situations. 
but it also highlights different dynamics of that. So there could be something that you've set into place that covers down on the original finding, but maybe through the course of the conversation throughout the year or in things that you've learned and talking to other folks, there's different pieces of that that may now not hold up when it engages another part of the business mm-hmm. or it, there's a dependency on a third party or yep. there's different aspects of it that, yes, that inherently works, but now you can get creative and you can kind of press on some of these other ones to make that piece even stronger or to say, no, what we sort of have seems to seems mm-hmm. to hold. It holds water. So we share these as these are things, trends we've seen over eight years of kind of doing this as consultants and and what that experience has been like. And hopefully this helps give you some guidance on things that you can avoid as you think about your own crisis management and business continuity programs. Yeah, yeah. That's it for this edition of the Managing Uncertainty Podcast. We'll be back next week with another new episode. Be well.